This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was supposed to be a fun night out at the movies for a couple that was expecting their first child in just a few days. Five years ago tomorrow, Caleb Medley and his wife Katie went to a late-night screening of the latest Batman film. A gunman opened fire, killing 12 and wounding many others. Katie and her unborn child escaped without injury. Caleb was shot in the face, leaving him paralyzed on one side. We're going to find out how they're doing. They are on the phone with us from Canyon City, Colorado, and uh, thanks for being with us. Hi. Hello. Caleb understands everything, but I'll say that his injury has impaired his speech. So, Katie, you may help clarify his responses. But, uh, Caleb, after multiple surgeries, you were in a medically induced coma for about a month. What's the first thing you remember about the shooting after you awoke? He said he remembers how far the movie got in before the shooting started happening. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. So he remembers where the movie stopped, is what he's saying. He said he was worried about me and the baby. Katie, what, what do you remember about that, that moment when the fun stopped and something else started? I um, just noticed something was wrong right away because as soon as that door opened, we saw something fly up in the air. And for a second, I was like, oh, someone's playing a prank, you know, because it was opening night. And, you know, we had this brief moment of thinking like whatever was flying through the air that like confetti or something was going to come out of it. And then I just had this sudden feeling of just terror, like something isn't right. So I put my arm around my friend Ashley and I threw her to the ground because I had realized she didn't realize what was going on. As I turned around to say something to Caleb and the gunfire started, I realized Caleb was still sitting in his chair. And that was such a confusing moment for me, because I'm like, there's gunfire, why are you still sitting in your chair? And that's when I realized he had been shot. Hmm. Uh, Ashley was a a friend of yours, uh, is a friend of yours, who was at the movie theater that night. Uh, Katie, you gave birth just days after the shooting in the same hospital where Caleb was being treated. And I I understand that you were able to bring your child, Hugo, into Caleb's room. What was that like? At that point, Caleb was in a medically induced coma, right? Yeah, so the... Gosh, I was a mess. Um, So the day that I actually was induced in labor, which was Sunday night, Caleb had a brain surgery that Monday. So then he was out of surgery and everything, and then I had the baby on Tuesday. So about three, I would think say it was like three hours after I had Hugo that we got to put Hugo with Caleb. And uh, it was a pretty great moment, but also bittersweet because Caleb didn't really get to enjoy it like he should have, but at least he was there, you know, to be with the baby. Do you have some sense that he had some sense of what was happening? I mean, I think Caleb knew what was going on. At least I'd like to think so. Do you remember anything? Because he remembers like people talking and different things, even though he was You remember Obama coming to visit? Is what he's saying. He came to the hospital room? Yes, he did. 
Caleb, you you lost your right eye and uh, suffered some brain damage from bullet fragments, which I understand some of which are still lodged in your brain. Um, have you developed other ways of communicating since your your speech is affected? Uh, he uses like a spelling board sometimes when he's um, out and about so that he can spell words for people, you know, because it's hard for people to understand him. And you've become something of an interpreter. How has that been? Um, sometimes it's difficult on the spot when I don't quite understand him, you know, because I live with him, we we understand him pretty well. And his dad and his family does too. But when we're out and about, it can be difficult. I know it's frustrating for Caleb because he feels like he has to repeat himself a lot. Yeah. Talk to me about that frustration a bit, Caleb, um, because that's such a huge change in your life from one, one day to the next, you know, one day you're able to communicate and, and the next it's a struggle. Yeah. He said that it makes him feel like people think he's stupid. How do you deal with that? He says, tell them to listen closer. He has a real tough time with that. It's frustrating for him. What effect has it had on your relationship, Katie? And, and and also on parenthood, like, you know, parenthood is difficult enough communicating with kids. Uh, at, it is, you know, but Hugo has grown up with it. So he understands Caleb pretty well. It's not always 100%, but he understands Caleb. Um, you know, I think it's just normal parenting stuff. Sometimes he goes to Caleb for the good stuff, huh? <laughs> and Caleb gives him what he wants. So... <laughs> I would say it's yeah. pretty normal. He sucks up to you, Caleb says he's, that Hugo sucks up to him. <laughs> I see. What What is a day like for you, Caleb? Can you just tell us what... Um, and I understand, by the way, that you've made a lot of progress with your motor skills because it, it was just about two two years ago you were able to stand for the first time since the shooting. He said it depends on the day. Good days and bad, huh? Uh-huh. Do you notice that, Katie, that uh, it fluctuates from day to day? Um, you know, what was talking about is like different days have different schedules. So not every day is the same. Um, he goes to a day program in Colorado Springs that um, they have other people who also have brain injuries like Caleb. So he goes up there and they have different classes and stuff. So on those days, we get up earlier and do different things. As far as Caleb physically has gone, um, things are getting better, but it's still slow progress for him. He's not walking like we were hoping at this point, but it doesn't mean that we're not trying still. What would you say is the biggest challenge? And uh, that question is for either of you. Caleb saying people. I think that Caleb gets frustrated because he feels like some people treat him like he's retarded because he's in a wheelchair and he doesn't speak as well. So I think that's a hard thing for Caleb, especially when he's always been such a social person. Hmm. it's hard, you know, and a lot of people just don't know how to approach him. I don't think that anybody means to treat him that way. I think it's just, they don't know how to approach him. So I think that's frustrating for you. Is that accurate, Caleb? Yeah. Yeah. And for you? Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, sometimes I think that we can live a pretty normal life and then some days it feels like we have the most abnormal life ever. So I think, you know, it's hard to see other people have normal problems and kind of wish we had just 
normal, average problems. What is a problem you long for? <sighs> like normal husband and wife fights sometimes. <laughs> you know, over like doing the dishes and laundry well, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Because a lot of times that mm-hmm. stuff lands on me to do. And so I see our friends, you know, fight over, well, why aren't you helping with this? And why aren't you helping with that? And, you know, for us, that's not a fight we have because that kind of lands on me to do. I heard Caleb interjecting there a bit. Uh, Caleb, did you want to chime in? What to make for dinner? I think sometimes he wishes he could cook more and things like that. And sort of contribute in that very physical way. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So Hugo's almost five then, right? Uh, Yeah, he'll be five on the 24th. What understanding does he have of what happened? Um, I don't know if you heard Caleb, but he said very little. Very little. And have you tried to keep it that way? You know, I just don't give him the whole story. He asks about what happened to dad, and I keep it brief to a bad guy hurt dad. You know, I don't give him the whole story. When he gets older, we'll discuss it more with him. He just knows that dad got hurt, and that's why he's in a wheelchair. You know, as he's gotten older, he started to notice the difference, that dad's kind of not like all the other dads. So he asks questions about that, but, you know, we, we, we haven't given him the whole story. He knows that dad was hurt. You have a second, right? So Caleb said, yes, it's mini-me number two, because we had another boy. (laughs) Mini-me. So I'm outnumbered officially at our house. (laughs) And what's his name? His name is Oliver. He's saying Oliver Levi. Oliver Levi. I love the name Oliver. Uh, You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, this week marks five years since the theater shooting in Aurora, uh, in which 12 died, many others were wounded, and we're talking to uh, two survivors, husband and wife, Caleb and Katie Medley. I want to note that you both took the stand during the shooter's trial, and you, you didn't have to do that, but what brought you two to that decision? You know, we just wanted to help get justice for what had happened to all of us. And I think a lot of people found our story compelling, so we felt like we needed to step up and, and make a stand and be a part of the whole process. What about you, Caleb? Caleb said he wanted to stand up for justice. Do you feel like the trial brought to light enough the plight of, of the families, of the of the victims, of their loved ones, of the survivors? I don't think anything can do that, to be honest. I mean, there's so many stories and so many people that have been affected by this, so we could go on for a very long time. And I just feel like the families probably didn't get to say as much as they wanted to or needed to, because it's just been such an effect on so many people. Caleb, what do you think? He said not enough focus on the families, he felt. What presence do other survivors have in your lives? Um, do you get together? Or are you in touch in some regards? 
We stay in touch with quite a few families. Um, we don't get together as often as we'd like just because yeah. we live, you know, two, out, two hours outside of Denver. But, you know, when we can, we do get together um, and see the family. So we do speak a lot with other families. Caleb, do you have nightmares? Oh, oh. He's saying no. Oh. No. Katie, do you have nightmares? So I did for at least the first year. I had a really hard time. I, I didn't sleep probably for the first year after the shooting. Um, it doesn't happen as frequently now as it used to, but I have suffered from it, yes. When I go into a movie theater now, I think of you. I think of all of those who were seated um, in that movie theater five years ago. Is it hard to see a movie now, Caleb? Uh, He's uh, saying no. He really doesn't mind going to see a movie at all. uh, He was like the first one to get back in there and go see a movie. What about you? It took me a long time. It was, I want to say, over two years before I went back to a movie. And even now, I make sure that we usually go during the day. I don't go at night for the most part. Yeah. Or the premiere, because that's kind of a sore point for us. We don't go on opening night or anything. We usually will wait for a movie to be out for a week or two before we go see it. Yeah. It's a little too high profile, huh? It is. You know, I don't like being in crowded places or in a crowded theater at all because that night was so packed and that just really brings back a lot of, memories for me personally took me a long time we finally took hugo to a movie too but um that took me a long time to take him also i, I want to note that that caleb you're a comedian and in fact days before uh, the... uh, yeah, be, de, be funny. you think that you got paid to be funny yeah <laughs> in in uh, fact days before the shooting you performed in a contest uh, at at comedy works um and you uh, did you did well enough to advance to the next round uh, and i wonder how humor has helped you in the last 5 years if at all He's saying my ugly mug. I'm not sure how that references to your question. (laughs) (laughs) It's ugly. Well, he's self-deprecating, right? Yeah, he likes to joke a lot. He finds himself very funny. He said, I'm funny. (laughs) Does it make it easier, Katie? For him to joke around sometimes. You know, we have a good time and sometimes he's inappropriate. You know, how comedians can be. They pick the worst times to make jokes. What does this tell you about marriage and what marriage is and what vows are? You know, I think that it... Caleb said, you never know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when you get married, we got married young. And when, you know, say death to us part and, you know, we're sicker or... All of that, it just, uh, you don't think something like this will happen. I think it makes me kind of rethink, like, what those mean. Because, I mean, it's a lot deeper than I think people realize when they get married. Yeah, that those words that you exchange really can mean so much more than than what they look like on the surface. Yeah, exactly. Uh Well, I think that, you know, you think that um, your spouse might get cancer or something like that, and then you'll be by their side for that. But nothing like this. Caleb's agreeing, yes. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think the future looks like? Caleb's is pretty good. 
He said, I'm going to teach the kids to be crazy like their dad. (laughs) (laughs) You're ridiculous. Katie, what do you, what do you see in the future? Well, I, I see, you know, what we've been going through for the past five years, which is a lot of great times and a lot of hard times. I think that's what life is built up of. And I think that that's what we have ahead of us. I think we have a lot of great times. We have two beautiful kids and, you know, we get to watch them grow and enjoy them. And there's no greater blessing than that. But I think, you know, we go through the trials just like everybody else, you know, normal fights and normal family things. And so I see just a normal path for us. These anniversaries, you know, it's been five years. Do they mean more to the press than they do to the victims? I'm I'm curious if five years is an important milestone for you or not. Okay, what he just said is, um, he said the media makes it bigger and that they just want a story, is what he said. Caleb, you agreed to talk to us, and I wonder, I wonder why then. Because I, I think that's a really important point you're making. You said because he wants to tell his story. Katie, what are your thoughts? I think that it's hard for us because we've been contacted a lot by a lot of different people. And, you know, it gets overwhelming for us to try and plan things and do stuff in the media. And it hasn't always been a good experience for us. I know a lot of people want to know about our story and want to get an update. And so many people helped us. I think what he means by what he said is that, you know, for a lot of media places, this is a story. And for us, it's our actual life, if that makes sense. Totally. That can be difficult for us, you know, because this might be a small segment for a lot of people. But for us, we live this every single day. Anyways, as far as the families go, I think this has been an especially tough um, anniversary for everyone. I'm feeling it. I know a lot of the other families are feeling it right now. I don't know what it is about being five years. I think it's just significant that it's been so long because for a lot of us, it feels like a long time ago. And then also just like yesterday. Well, thanks to both of you for sharing a slice again, just a small slice of your life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. He said, thank you. Caleb and Katie Medley of Canyon City. They survived the Aurora Theater shooting. It took place five years ago tomorrow. Let Democrats in. That's the message from U.S. Senator from Colorado Michael Bennett after the latest collapse of a Republican health care proposal, this time in his own chamber. Bennett says now is the time for a bipartisan solution. We spoke Tuesday, and a note that we have an invitation out to speak with his Republican colleague, Cory Gardner. Senator Bennett, welcome back to the program. Thank you for letting me come back. Let's look at what's going on in Colorado under the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which remains the law of the land. Figures released last week show that people who buy on the individual market face a 27 percent premium increase next year. That is on top of a 20 percent increase last year. What needs to be fixed in the Affordable Care Act to avoid premium increases like that? I think the first thing that would help would be to stop referring to our health care system as the Affordable Care Act. 
Our healthcare system is much bigger than that. It's much more complex than that. It has to do with Medicare, Medicaid, our private insurance market, doctors, nurses, people's health care itself. And I think that if senators would begin to address the needs that their constituents have, including the kind of sticker shock that you're talking about, I think we could make progress by increasing more transparency, by increasing more competition by insurance providers, by giving people the chance to be able to know what they're buying when they pay for health care or pay for insurance. And um, unfortunately, this has all become a political football about Obamacare or not Obamacare. My view is that whether you're a supporter of the Affordable Care Act or not in Colorado, in general, your intersection with our health care system is not a very positive experience. You talk about transparency and competition. Give me an example of one of those, a specific change that could be made. Well, I'll give you an example of two of those. So the the most common worry I hear in rural parts of Colorado is that there's only one insurer, or sometimes there's not even one insurer. And we ought to fix that. And we either ought to fix that by having a market that can sustain more than one insurer because of the way we draw the pools of people that will be insured. That is so people can actually make a business of it. And if that can't work, then we should create other options like a public option for people, the ability to buy into Medicare or Medicaid. I mean, I think those are all possibilities that would create competition. With respect to transparency, anybody who's had to care for a parent or care for uh, a child or care for themselves knows that unlike almost any other human endeavor, it's almost impossible to find out what anything costs. And that's something actually I've been fighting for since the Affordable Care Act was passed. You talk about the lack of uh, coverage in some parts of the state. Anthem, for instance, is the only carrier in 14 counties in the western part of the state. The company at one point was threatening to pull out of the state entirely until recently. I want to go back to this notion of a public option, perhaps expanding Medicaid or Medicare, allowing people to buy into those programs who don't currently qualify. Right now, 20% of Coloradans are on Medicaid. Uh, The Republicans, of course, in their various plans have proposed big cuts to that program and at the same time giving states more say over how to use those dollars. Uh, But it sounds like you want to take it in the opposite direction. Yeah, I am in the other direction because the direction they went in doesn't even represent where Republicans are in Colorado, much less our Democrats or independents. What makes you think Coloradans want a public option? And maybe compare and contrast that a little bit with single payer, which failed at the ballot box. I think what they want is to be able to not have to make decisions that people all over the industrialized world do not have to make when it comes to health care. And how we get there, I think, is up for debate and up for discussion, what the contours of it look like. But I do think the American people and people in Colorado are fed up with a health care system that doesn't support them or their families well. Get back to this public option for me. Do, do a little comparing and contrasting perhaps with the single payer model, which has been talked about a lot. Well, a single payer option would be an option that where there is no private insurance. Um, and where everybody is in the same plan, a public option, there are different ways you could design it. But I think in general, what it is meant to do is provide um, competition to the private market and just give people an alternative they can choose to be in if they want to be in or not. So where do you direct your energies as a member of the minority party? Is this just sort of yelling into an empty chasm here? 
Well, I'm not yelling at anybody. I hope that, yes, um, talking into I, an empty can. I'm not. I mean, my energy is uh, where I get my energy is from the town hall meetings and the and the other countless meetings I've had around the state, listening to people talk about their struggles with with healthcare and where they see the opportunities. There's plenty of legislation that's pending in Congress, including bills that I have. For example, with Rob Portman, who's a Republican from Ohio that would change the way Medicare works so that we'd focus our attention on people in Medicare that are the sickest 15% of patients that cost us 50% of our spending. There's much better way of dealing with that than the way we're dealing with it today. And I think that we've got to find a way to come together as Republicans and Democrats and address this issue. I am astonished that the president's reaction to the failure in the Senate uh, is to say that he's going to, quote, let Obamacare fail. It's just an utterly irresponsible position for him to take. He's been sabotaging the bill ever since he became president. And I guess he's going to continue to do that. That's not going to help Republicans or Democrats in Colorado afford health insurance. And yet Republicans uh, won in large part on the message of repealing this law. They have a duty then, don't they, to fulfill that commitment to their constituents? Well, I think that now that they're governing, they have a duty to the American people. They can make their judgment about whether that, that requires a repeal or not. They voted to repeal Obamacare, I think it was 60 times in the House of Representatives when President Obama was president. They voted to repeal it uh, in the Senate in 2015, and it actually went to the president who vetoed it. Now they have the presidency, they have the Senate, they have the House of Representatives, and I think what they're discovering is that the empty rhetoric that they used to talk about the Affordable Care Act over the last eight years can't be matched by a legislative proposal that can pass with simply Republican votes much less the way it should pass, which is with Republicans and Democrats. Do you think there's any room for shrinking Medicaid? I think it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. If your view of the world is the federal government should be less involved in health care, if, if that's your principled view of the world, I think you could then take the position we should reduce Medicaid. The question then becomes, I think, what happens to the people who are now on Medicaid? So the story that's told by some of the most zealous opponents of Medicaid and the people that want to get rid of it to pay for tax cuts for the wealthiest 1% of Americans are people that are saying there are a whole bunch of lazy people in states like Colorado who, if they weren't on Medicaid, would work and therefore could buy private insurance. That's just not true. What there are in in Colorado, 50% or so of the people on Medicaid or children. A huge number of the people are in nursing homes, so obviously can't work. They've spent their entire life savings down for the privilege of being on Medicaid. And then, shamefully, there are people working in the United States of America in the 21st century who are working one or two jobs and cannot afford private insurance and therefore on Medicaid. So my view is if you want to reduce Medicaid, you ought to come with a plan to make private insurance more affordable for the people that are on Medicaid. You ought to come with a plan that can provide insurance to people in nursing homes who have spent down their life savings. And you ought to tell us how we're going to cover poor children in this country that are now covered by Medicaid. And so what I hope happens is that rational people come to the table and have a conversation that actually reflects the values of people that live in states like Colorado. 
This you've, is not about a science experiment. It's not about something that you read in your Ayn Rand novel in, in when you were 16 years old. This is about the American people. You've talked about transparency, uh, which you presumably see as a way of maybe driving down cost if those figures are more transparent. But, you know, American health care is the most expensive in the world by far. In 2015, Americans spent $3.2 trillion on it. $10,000 for every man, woman, child. Uh, given rising costs for drugs, hospital care, medical equipment, uh, does transparency make a dent? Yeah, it would make a huge dent. If you don't have transparency, you can't have a real market. If you don't know what a knee replacement costs at every single hospital and every single provider in the, in Colorado or the Denver metro area, if you don't, you can't make a good judgment. Time magazine had a cover story three or four years ago about the the way um, billing is done in hospitals and what it demonstrated was there's absolutely no rationalization or rationale at all for what charges they make. So what, is it sufficient? No. Is it necessary? Yes. I think that we sh- Medicare should be able to negotiate for drug prices. I think that would be another thing that would bring prices down. One provision of the current health care law that has run into a lot of heat is the mandate that business offer insurance. Small businesses say that the costs can be prohibitive, and there's some evidence that businesses have gotten around that by reducing employee hours. Um, would you be willing to scrap that mandate? I certainly would be willing to look at the way that it works in practice, and I have heard employers say that They've reduced hours uh, in order to to come under the threshold. That obviously is something that nobody would want, at least I wouldn't want. It's also true. I, I actually think the most legitimate criticism of, of the Affordable Care Act, now not the health care system generally, but of the Affordable Care Act, is people that I meet in places like Route County who say to me, Michael, look, you're requiring me to buy health insurance, but I make too much money to qualify for the subsidy and – Insurance is really expensive because there is insufficient competition in my county, and the deductible is so high, it's of no use to my family. Why would you force me to buy something that doesn't make sense? I think that is an excellent critique of legislation that I voted for, and I would like to change that. I'd like to look at the issues that you raised on small businesses as well. And if we had a functioning Congress, these are the kinds of things we'd be working on together to try to improve our healthcare system. To another topic briefly, a presidential commission looking at possible voter fraud. Uh, This is a White House commission. Recently asked the states for some detailed information on voters. Secretary of State here in Colorado, Wayne Williams, said he's willing to provide some of that information that the law already makes public. He has also suggested several reforms to the election process, including a requirement that the federal government inform all state election officials if it finds vulnerabilities in the election security in any state, that kind of information sharing. You have called for this uh, White House Commission on Election Fraud to simply disband. But uh, from Wayne Williams' point of view, it may be able to broach some important issues. What what do you say? I, I know the spirit in which this commission was created. I sat in the White House and listened to the president of the United States, Donald Trump, claim that he would have won the state of New Hampshire uh, if thousands of illegal voters hadn't been bused from what he called certain parts of Massachusetts to New Hampshire. That's simply not true. It did not happen. 
I believe this is a concerted effort on his part to try to drive down voter participation in this democracy. And the evidence of that is that over 4,000 people in Colorado have unregistered from the voting rolls in the wake of the announcement of this commission. I believe that is against everything that this republic stands for, and I believe they should withdraw a commission that set out to prove that a problem that does not exist actually exists. It has borne out that many of those who withdrew their registration were uh, predominantly Democrats and unaffiliated voters. Do you think that's an act of protest or, or do you think that they're actually concerned about their information, which, by the way, Wayne Williams says is already public? I think that the reason why you're seeing people do it is out of fear that somehow the federal government is going to misuse their voter data. How realistic is a bipartisan solution on health care? Is that a pipe dream? I think it can't be a pipe dream because I think the only solution is one that will come from Republicans and Democrats working together. The Republicans have proven that they can't do it by themselves. And and now, hopefully, that now that Mitch McConnell has wasted six months of the American people's time, he now will come to his senses and allow Democrats to be able to work with him to try to produce a result. And if he does that, I think he'll find that there are numbers of Democrats that have worked, for example, as I have with Rob Portman, who's a Republican from Ohio, to produce fixes to our health care system, most broadly understood, and, uh, and that that's how we ought to go forward. Senator Bennett, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett is a Democrat from Colorado. He spoke to us from Washington, D.C. We've also asked Republican Senator Cory Gardner to be on the show to talk about health care. He has not yet accepted that invitation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ute Indians have made their home in Colorado longer than any other inhabitants. Montrose Museum devoted to their culture is open again after major renovations. Gone are the dusty dioramas. New additions include an exhibit on the Ute's modern accomplishments. C.J. Brafford is the museum's first Native American director. She joins CPR's Andrea Dukakis. C.J., welcome to the show. Well, good morning, smiles, and good thoughts. (laughs) The first exhibit you come across in the renovated museum includes an oil rig drill bit, packaged corn products, and a football helmet. Why are these um, Why are these things there, and what do they say about the Ute Indians? Well, the Ute people today who um, encompass Colorado and Utah um, have moved forward in history and have. Um, and with economic enterprises they have developed on their reservations. Um, that was the, the oil drill bit that you see there, and there's a football. And it, uh, it's just showing that we have um, come into the future. There is always the history of the past, but they're showing that they're very vibrant people, still very much here today, pursuing, you know, in our great nation here, um, opportunities for them as well. So a focus on the present, the future, and also the past. You had a lot of input from Ute tribes. How much did that help you tell maybe a more authentic story? Well, for the first time, it is through their voices. It's their stories, their perspective. You know, our general theme here was the history, as they would say, our history is written on the land. And that was a quote by Regina Lopez-White-Scott. And so we took that and themed our 
whole exhibit on the different areas of um, of Colorado, since this is, you know, in their stories, you know, they will say they've always been here, versus to what archaeological people will set dates and so forth. Mm. Where in Colorado did the youths live? Well, you know, currently today, um, they live um, here in Colorado. There are the two reservations. There's your southern Ute reservation, which is um, outside Durango. And then you have your Ute Mountain Reservation, which is outside Cortez. Um, that's their homelands of today. But again, through their stories or creation stories, they always say that they were, you know, they lived in the mountains. They've always lived here. That's how with the old people, how they, they share and talk to the generations. What other areas were they in in the past, though? Well, you know, be... And Utah. Again, as I mentioned, there's Utah. There are two actual Colorado bands that in 1881 that were removed and went up to Utah where the Uinta Utes were established. But when the Utes did obtain the horse, their boundaries exceeded even outside Colorado. But their their history covers all of um, the Colorado area. And that's why even in our in our exhibits, we have, um, we talk about using all the areas um, based on, in Colorado, from their history to the family to away from home, which is like about boarding school. But again, we've taken that, that geographic theme and throughout Colorado. The museum was built 61 years ago on land that has a lot of historical meaning to the Utes. What is it about that location? Well, the doors opened in 1950, 56, the museum. But prior to that, there were... Um, some Ute people, the Oncompagre band of Utes that lived in this part of what is now today Montrose. And you had uh, one of the many leaders among the Ute people was Chief Uray and his wife, Chapita, who had land here that they they farmed, homestead, as you may want to call it. Uh, so that is the significance as well as Chapita, Uray's wife, is also buried here. She was um, She passed in 1924 but was brought back here in March of 1925. And at that time, there were over 1,000 people at her um, reburial. And then there's also John McCook, uh, a youth that's also buried here. Uray and Chapita are a key focus in the museum. Tell us a little bit more about them. Well, they are, they've been at the beginning of time because this is the Uray Memorial grounds here that we have. And then the museum being built, and it is overseen by History Colorado, and but there are other leaders as well that we focus in the museum, too, but the focus of them, because of them being here in this area, as I shared earlier, but there are many other leaders that we do focus from, you know, Buckskin Charlie, Ignacio, Colorado, and moving up to our leaders today um, within the U tribes and people who sit on council as well. The two of them, though, were very involved in, you know, going to Washington. Both of them went to Washington to talk to the U.S. government. Um, tell us a little bit more about what they did for the tribe. Well, uh, Ure was a, a man of great wisdom and foresight. He knew the government was always underhanded, and they were going to do what they were going to do anyway. So he kept that balance. He kept a friendship. Um, and he did have a friendship with the white government, and which, you know, caused conflict as well with his, his own people. But with that being said, it was through him that um, I believe that kept the Utes to where they're at today here, especially in, in Colorado, although the Uncompahgre's and the White Rivers were moved up to 
to Colorado, but um, you know, with their, his leadership, uh, and it was the, the white government that really went to speak to, to Uray and a lot of the decision-making as well, too. But they were very significant people in the history of Colorado. And But, you know, I always don't like to forget all the other Ute leaders as well, too. I understand that Uray uh, learned Spanish from Mexican sheep herders, and the couple adopted and raised Indian and Spanish children during their lives. Is that right? And and that is true. Yeah. And there were a lot of Utes very common that spoke uh, Spanish because he did speak Spanish and uh, Ute English, and uh, perhaps a little bit of Apache as well too, because he was um, Uray was. Uh, Ute, or Nuch, as they call themselves, the Nuch people, but he was also Apache. Mm. And Chapita, his wife, um, was not um, not Ute, but she was um, Apache herself, Kiowa Apache. But she lived among the Utes for so long, um, she was part of the, the Ute peoples. And the Meeker Massacre was a pivotal point in the Utes' history. It really changed the fate of the Utes. What happened? Well, as I like to share the Meeker incident, and, you know, there's two sides to every story, but uh, Ute people were rounded up, sent up, you know, to where Meeker now living on reservation lands. And um, Meeker came in. He had his own thought, and, you know, he plowed a field and the to the uh, Ute people, and Indian people today, you know, the horse, you know, we hold very sincere to us, and it was an area that they would like to horse race. And, you know, and that started conflict. But even before that, and that gave the, in my opinion, you know, it was always the white government um, wanted the Utes removed. But I was looking in documents, and they used that, the Meeker incident, as like the Utes must go. That was a big campaign, of course, when the Utes were removed. But I've looked in further documents. They were always trying to find something, too. They've already started that planning, getting the Utes removed. But this was an incident that kind of put the icing and then, therefore, as we know in history, in 1881, the Utes removed. Uh, but Uray and Chapita um, were not involved with that. But they, again, they came in as kind of the to bring the balance um, when that incident took place. But still, they had to, they were removed. The museum has other displays chronicling the government's poor treatment of the Utes. Can you give me some other examples of that? Well, uh, we have some exhibits talking about boarding school, and that's an you know, whole context issue in itself. Um, you talk about board, that a little bit. Well, you know, boarding school was with uh, assimilation, um, removing them away from their home environment to another environment, you know, cut the hair, take away, and one of the big things, take away their language um, to assimilate them into uh, uh, the white society, the, the white culture. So we do focus on um, on the, the boarding school also. And, and you know, there, there's... Um, conflict with the, the government um, as well that we display with some of the exhibits um, of who they chose as leadership as well. And sometimes, you know, there is the conflict they chose Ure, but that sometimes didn't sit well with the other leaders as well, too. So that's why I always like to point out there are other leaders as well within this time of the, the youth history. Um, and, and we just have a few minutes left, but um, you prefer to call the items in the museum belongings rather than exhibits. And uh, just one example um, of the belongings you display next to each other that offer some comparisons. You have a child's pair of uncomfortable-looking leather shoes next to a tiny pair of beaded moccasins. Why have those two together? Well, those 
compare the items that you're talking about have to do with um, we're talking about the boarding school. This is part of that assimilation. You know, they came in wearing moccasins, and um, they all that was taken away from them. Their clothing, like I said, cut their hair, their language, and then they were put into um, such things as the the leather laced boots that you're referring to that are on exhibit in the museum. I, I have to wrap up here. I really appreciate your being here. Well, thank you very much, and I just would like to just, you know, um, uh, end with just saying that um, welcome, you know, to everybody, to the Ute Museum. Come hear the stories, smiles, and good thoughts. C.J. Brafford directs the Ute Indian Museum. It's in Montrose, and it is open again after major renovations. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Finally today, Denver has a big new outdoor music venue. Levitt Pavilion in Ruby Hill Park opens tomorrow night with a few local bands led by the alt-country group Slim Cessna's Auto Club. So this nonprofit venue plans to host as many as 50 free concerts a year, as well as some ticketed shows, says Levitt spokesman Chris Zacker. In order to truly have a successful arts community, you have to find ways to make it more accessible from the patron side and the artist side. Our long-term vision of what we're trying to do is to provide a launching pad for artists. And, and that goes for local artists and, and national and international artists as well that are really starting to emerge. Denver rock band Andy Thomas's Dust Heart is also on tomorrow's lineup. They performed recently in the CPR Performance Studio. And here's the tune, Everything Alive. I don't want anything old. I just want everything new. I don't want nothing broken, painted black and new blue, baby. I want everything new. I just want everything alive. I think I've had enough death. I don't want my friends to die until there's none of them left, baby. I have had enough death. Maybe I'll be seen in a different kind of life. Andy Thomas's Dust Hearts, one of the groups that will open the new Levitt Pavilion Denver Thursday night with a free concert. There is a full list of the venue's 2017 events, many of which again are free, at openaircpr.org. Again, openaircpr.org. With Andrea Dukakis, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Just want to feel alive.